Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Fired Up and Plugged In podcast powered by Emergency Reporting. This is the podcast for all 21st century fire and EMS personnel. I'm Tom Lewis, Enterprise Training Manager and the podcast producer. Thank you for joining us for this part one of our Across the Pond Special Edition. Our guest today is British Fire Chief Tony McGurk. Chief McGurk is recognized as a visionary, strategic, and operational leader among international fire and safety agencies, both at the local, regional, national, and international levels. He is credited with developing and implementing one of the first and most progressive successful initiatives in the fire and emergency services, now known as community risk reduction. This concept is now embraced throughout North America, Europe, and Australia. In recognition of the leadership role he played in changing the culture of the fire service and community risk reduction, he was awarded the Queen's Fire Service Medal and was made commander of the British Empire. After his retirement as Chief Fire Officer and Chief Executive of Department of Merseyside UK, his consultancy has advised major corporations on risk, crisis and emergency management, leadership, innovation and organizational change. He has also spent five years in Australia on a Distinguished Talent Visa as Executive Director with the Environment Protection Agency. Chief McGurk has an international reputation for building and motivating cross-functional teams that exceed expectations. We are pleased he's able to join Chief Brugman for what promises to be an engaging podcast. Chief Brugman, it's all yours, sir. Thank you, Tom. Tony, how are you? I'm great, Randy. How are you? Thanks for the chance of speaking with you guys. Thank you, and good day, everyone, and welcome back to another session of uh, Fired Up and Plugged In, and uh, it's really a pleasure of mine to have uh, Chief McGurk on today because I've known Tony for many, many years. Uh, We go back uh, almost from from the inception of the accreditation process uh, where we uh, actually were exploring what uh, Great Britain had done, uh, starting with the Riverdale report in 1936 about integrated risk management, which had significant influence on the development of our agency accreditation process as well as community risk reduction here in in the U.S. So, uh, Tony, welcome. I know you've been a Thank real you, advocate. I know you've been a real advocate for uh, risk management and and, and uh, looking at things a little bit differently. I think than uh, many in the fire and emergency service services do today. So, I just wanted to kind of explore that with you and maybe share some insights for our audience today that they can take back to their own organizations. Great, thank you. And thanks for the opportunity of being here with you guys. As you said, we've known each other a long time now, Randy, and it's been great really to have that um, cross-fertilization of ideas about risk management. And I think mm-hmm. the community risk reduction initiatives in the US have really taken the concept onto the next level. So it's great to see. So do you see sharing back uh, into uh, into the UK from the community risk reduction standpoint? Definitely. I think, I mean, I think the, the, the starting point for me in Merseyside was really um, the realization that um, fire prevention was was the core business. And I'd heard that a lot in my career, that, but mm-hmm. I'd not seen the sort of, what does that mean in reality? And I found that lots of firefighters wanted to talk about fire prevention, but when it came to some really tough choices, um, it was it was much harder to do fire prevention than it was to talk about fire prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the sort of in Merseyside, we were typically quite an old city. Um, you know, the wealth of the city came about in the, the 1800s. It was a very, very wealthy port. 50% of the world's trade went through the city. And that was a huge, a huge wow. proportion of the world's economy. Um, and so it, it was a very traditional type of city. But then we in the 50s and 60s, when the city hit hard times, a little bit like Detroit, a city founded on the car industry, when mm -hmm. the car industry went deprivation, poverty, and fires. You know, fires are, are inextricably linked to poverty and deprivation. And so we sort of tolerated a very high level of fire death and fire injury for many years. And the traditional model was put more firefighting resources, so more firefighters, more fire trucks, trying to get to the problem quicker to solve the fire problem. Um, and what became more obvious to me than the fire problem was the fire prevention problem. What we needed to do was get into the community and persuade them to take ownership of their fire problem. You know, they can't, a community cannot transfer its problems to the fire department. Mm -hmm. You know, the fire department have to help them solve their problems where the problems occur, which is in the home. And yeah. so that was the, the underpinning philosophy that we adopted in Merseyside. Yeah, and I think that uh, the, the whole integrated risk management piece that uh, the entirety of Great Britain took on uh, over the last 30 or 40 years, you've seen that slow evolution where there's been a real shift in focus uh, from just responding yeah. to actually preventing. And I think I think the USA was was a much much further ahead in many ways than the UK when the US really adopted EMS and that medical response as part of the the, the workload of fire departments and and to this day that's still not really happening in the UK and I thought that was very visionary in the US, um, but in a way the UK focused then on the fire part of our business, um, and the government sort of took some persuading but then realized actually the job of the fire service is to reduce the risk not mm -hmm. for the wait for the system to fail and then respond to sort of mop up the problem is to get upstream and prevent the problem and once the government really made that very clear in law that it was a legal duty to reduce risk rather than just respond to risk mm -hmm. um we had to become smarter and we had to become more scientific and we had to really think about the business model and the business we were in as, a, as an agency and that was quite it's, that's a tough thing to do um, and i think one of the advantages the uk had over the us is the legal framework within which we operate is a national framework yeah. and so the law was very clear that is the job of the fire service i think in america it's been very different and i think a lot of leaders have shown the courage of their conviction that the fire service is about something more than fire response um, and to have the courage of your conviction you need a conviction and it's been really i think for, great for me to see over the many years i've been spending time with american colleagues how how american leaders have brought an open mind to this question what is the job of the fire service you know and, and i think the way in which agencies have embraced community risk reduction really is, I think, to the huge credit of the leaders of the American fire services. 
that it's you know they've taken on board the concept and really really adapted it for the US. I think there's always a temptation if something works well in one country to sort of take it and plant it into another country and it, it ignores the basic component of change which is culture and although there are similarities there's huge differences and so I think it's absolutely right that the concept that we've taken on board in the UK needed contextualization it needed adaptation for the American culture and I think American leaders have done a great job of that so when you took over in Merseyside and you started to, and, and I think that was in 96, uh, I believe. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you were kind of at the, maybe not at the tail end, but you were, you were at the front end of really redesigning uh, the organizational philosophy and shifting from response only to one of risk reduction. Is that correct? It is. Uh, there were two, well, two drivers really. The first was, the need to drive down the number of fires, fire deaths, fire injuries. You know, there was there just the volume of call was huge. Um, and so, you know, we had to sort of turn the tip the balance. We had to dr drastically reduce that. Alongside that, the costs of the fire service were just escalating to a point. They were just unaffordable. You know, the, the, the community quite a poor community just and the way the UK services are funded there's a lot of local tax funds the local service and so the community just couldn't afford more and more and more investment in service we had to cap the cost as well as reduce the risk mm -hmm. and so those two things forced us to look at things all parts of the, the, the service very very drastically not only do we have to do things better and smarter they had to be leaner and cheaper you know that that's a really tough message oh it is it was in 1996 you know in the 2000s in a post sort of global financial world and now you know the world's experienced a lot of that sort of uh lean systems but in 96 you know that wasn't the case and so it was really tough to sort of get that message over to firefighters and get buy-in that this is just what we needed to do for our communities. Yeah, I think we're seeing that here in the in the U.S. right now. I mean, the whole issue of sustainability and how we how we're going to afford our services in the future because the expenses, just like you experienced, are going up pretty significantly. Um, and I think from a standpoint of you know how do we really tackle uh, the issues that we're facing? I think data is telling us that we can't build enough fire stations to get there fast enough to really have the impact that we need to have if we're going to reduce the risk factors in our community and no and i, and I think it's obvious it, it one way but it that doesn't mean it's any any easier as a message to get over to people who've yeah. grown up in a culture that's that's really a very community focused in serving the community it's just the definition of what that service looks like Mm -hmm. is really changing it's really changing very quickly and you know we're moving from a landscape that's been pretty stable to, mm -hmm. to all these changes and all these risks so you know suddenly you've got um lithium battery systems springing up everywhere you've got electric vehicles you've got solar panels you've got hydrogen cells you know these massive community changes and and all bringing new risks and and, and whereas in the past we've had time to really 
at a very sort of measured pace respond we don't we're not, we've not got that luxury technology is moving so quickly sure. then you put alongside that climate change you know you know i i've had some experience the uk we don't really have wildfires or bushfires uh we have some moorland fires but the scale you know we i used to think living in the uk well this is pretty big until i went to australia and there's a sort of thousand mile flame from you know it's just <laughs> the scale is just yeah and so when i looked at the environment agency i, I mobilized to give um we need to put a disaster waste plan together for a fairly significant bushfire well when i joined the fire service the idea that you know you pl had a plan to deal with all the waste from a disaster was would have been bizarre so so when i flew from sydney to where the fire was in english terms it would be like me flying from liverpool to moscow you know it would that would be a you know a long long flight and yeah. that was just in one state so that scale is very very different so you put the the complexity of the problem bushfires drought and um, you know what do you do with four thousand dead kangaroos you know that, that, these these questions just you know become mind-boggling in scale right down to how do we prevent the home the family that lost the home in a bushfire from never losing the home again you know so you mm -hmm. you know the fire service has got to work on this really granular scale from the micro level to the macro level that's really really challenging when all these issues are just the pace seems to be accelerating so i think the leaders of the fire service are doing a really good job of stepping up to the plate and the mm -hmm. more we share learning i think that you know the more integrated our learning is as a service and that therefore our plans are more integrated but uh but it isn't going to be easy that's for sure no i think i think you're exactly right i mean we we've, we've known for at least many years here in the, in the u.s that our wildland urban interface fires um are a direct result of us allowing building into those areas and not managing our forest uh, yeah. and the result has been just catastrophic um, and we, we can't put enough, I mean, some of these fires have four or five, 6,000 firefighters on scene for, you know, several weeks. The costs are hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm. And, you know, and when you make poor decisions going into a process, <laughs> like yes. where you build, um, and, and then react to it 20 or 30 years later, uh, it's really, really difficult. And it's, I think the mind shift that we need to have in the, the World Fire Service is, you know, the, the whole preventive piece is as important as everything else we do. Um, no, I agree, Rand. I think also we've got to start sending some signals out to the political leadership that things have changed. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't think they need to be huge. So I think we need to move to smaller, leaner vehicles. So one of the things I brought in was a very rapid response type philosophy, you mm -hmm. know, from um, guys in a park with backpacks on that could, you know, the pop festival or a, a concert or an open day up, uh, outdoor event. Have back, backpack responders that can put a fire very quickly to guys on motorbikes to smaller vehicles. You know, this just the, the, the in in the past we've always measured that that initial attack as being when a fire truck arrives with a group of firefighters that are trained to ex the standards of input just go on and on and on, and you know most 
people have a pretty good idea pretty quickly how to put a fire out. You know, I think there's technical components, but at the heart of it, I think we can engage the community much more in initial attack and initial intervention. And mm -hmm. I think we've got to let go a little more um, from the professional side of the service and, and engage a very rapid, safe, local intervention. And technology can help us in that. Um, and I think mm -hmm. our codes and standards to a degree have been, are going to become barriers. You know, there are assets in the past. I think we've got to be careful they don't become tomorrow's barriers to, to that pace of change. You know, you look at the way, the speed in which we've got a vaccine if we'd have, you know, if that was a huge fire, you know, you look at the scale of bushfires. I wonder if the attitude to bushfires was the same as the attitude to COVID-19, <laughs> whether we'd be having those 6,000 firefighters. You know, I think and our job as leaders is to start to change the attitude at all levels. And I think there is an attitude and it'll change to, to the way technology of climate, the way technology of energy production, is changing very very quickly and i think we've got to step up and have views about what that means for our firefighters oh i agree I, and i think you hit on a really important point it's the attitude it's a cultural attitude uh, of a country of a city of a county uh in their level of acceptance and, and often we're, we we will accept you know significant losses but like you, you pointed out with covid Everybody was scared to death worldwide, so we all, you know, focused our effort. Well, and I think the fire service is such an amazing brand. You know, I know that um, I think on previous podcasts you've had uh, another good friend of ours, Ben May, who's, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so passionate about marketing and marketing the fire service. And he talks about the value of the brand. And he is right. You know, apart from Disney, you'd struggle to think of a brand that's got more acceptability across the board mm -hmm. um got more of a sense of security and so what we tried to do in merseyside was use that brand in whatever way we could so we didn't draw boundaries about you know our job is to prevent fires our view was our job is to make the community safer and healthier because the healthier a person is the less likely they are to die in a fire you know mm -hmm. If someone can't run away, then they're not going to escape the fire. You know, so that so the more we invest energy of our downtime in getting communities healthier and fitter, the more likely they are to survive or not have a fire in the first place, but if they did survive the fire. So for example, all of our fire station gyms were open to the public. Right. You know, so our firefighters were champions of uh, wellness. We would use our fire station cooks to sort of bring kids onto the fire station learn how to cook meals and cook safely um we'd have fire pits in the fire station so you know where you get you know areas of deprivation instead of the gangs lighting cars to attract fire guys to come and put them out we'd go out there and light a fire and say look come around and talk to us you know sit around the fire and talk to us kids don't mm -hmm. attack us you know and i think that there was no I can't think of an idea that we said no to. You know, firefighters are so innovative. Once you unlock that willingness to adopt and adapt the idea, most firefighters' ideas don't cost a lot of money to implement. You know, they're pretty, pretty pragmatic people. I say, I've got an idea. You know, the answer is yes, but you don't know what it is yet. 
well, whatever it is, provided it's going to cost us a million dollars, let's just do it. Yeah. And, all right. Well, what do, what do I need to do? Just well, do it. You know, what, what, what are the permissions you need and just do it? For example, we had a lot, quite a lot of stations where um, childcare is not a huge problem for a lot of people in many ways because lots of people want to look after really cute and lovable kids elderly relative care that might be they might be incontinent or have dementia or lots of other problems and challenges it's less appealing to many people it, i feel it's much harder if i were firefighters it was much harder to get care for elderly relatives than their kids and mm -hmm. so trying to help firefighters blend their lives and their working lives to those care needs was quite a challenge in the shift system so we created the idea of self-rostering stations and said, look, there's 10 guys on the station. As long as there's four guys on the truck, I, I don't really care how you do it. So why don't you work it between yourselves? Just make sure there's four guys on the truck. As long as you're all trained and you're all competent, why do I need a roster? Why do you need a roster? You know, yeah. and organize it yourselves and let's see how it works. And you know what? it works you know there's some really <laughs> smart guys out there let's trust them and so those ideas were took time in the fire culture to adopt because we're quite mm -hmm. regimented and we quite like that hierarchy mm -hmm. but i don't think that's the world we're into now and the younger generation of firefighters like that freedom and flexibility we found it might be different in the us but that's the world and i think with covid working from home and I think people's expectations on the work-life balance will change in the future. So I think there's going to be more of that. Yeah, I think that's pretty significant. Did you put any parameters around, uh, you know, the number the number of hours they could work, or it, was there a framework that they had to operate within when they set up their own sector? Yeah, well, in, by law, on average in the European Union, you're not allowed to work more than 48 hours a week, mm -hmm. or over a sort of. 16 week period so we sort of monitored that um and if somebody was working a little too much we just got the station together so well either they're not looking after themselves or everyone's taking advantage that they're really keen to be at work you know either way you know just let's just have a look at it guys but we were really careful not to come down too heavy on that because you're sort of you're defeating the object of people looking after themselves mm -hmm. and i always found for people to be trustworthy, you've got to give them trust. You know, yeah. it's an, another example, Randy. G give give them all a credit card. You know, when I said to the finance guy, I want all the firefighters have a credit card. Well, you know, this poor guy went bald in a second. <laughs> well, what are they going to do with it? Well, hopefully, spend some money. That's the point of a credit card, isn't it? Well, what audit trail will you have in place? Well, what audit trail do you have? What do you have for your credit card? Well, why don't we use that? You know, what more do you need? Because if you put another audit trail, you're implying I don't trust you. Yeah. And yet I trust you with the lives of the community. You know, I'm not going to trust you with a credit card. And I think these messages of trust are really, really important. On the converse, if somebody breaches that trust and stole money, or whatever, then they should go to you know straight to the police. You know, lock them up. There's, I think behave is pretty simple, you know, you're either honest or you're not. There's no slightly honest or slight, you know, you, and honesty, I've never found a dishonest firefighter. I'm sure there's the odd one, but I've never come across one 
So what are they going to do with it? So I think we've been seduced by systems that are completely unnecessary and over-administrative. Yeah. Yeah, we had similar discussions when I was in Anaheim with, because, uh, you know, we would send people out on these strike teams that they'd go all over the state and they'd be gone for a long time. And to get them credit cards, even just to take with them on the piece of equipment was quite a discussion with our finance department. <laughs> and it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it uh, we got we got through it. But, you know, uh, it's well, one it's, of the things I did was was send the finance team uh, as far as I could in the country. So can you go and attend this conference? And I found a conference in the middle of nowhere that was really <laughs> difficult to travel to. And I said, but by the way, you can pay all your own expenses and I'll sign off the form in about three months time. Like you make our firefighters wait, you know, and see how you like it. Because it's amazing mm -hmm. how quickly the finance team managed to get their expenses. Um, <laughs> and that idea, you know, we, we wanted to treat everybody the same. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, we had one uniform for the whole fire department. And that was quite a challenge for some of our operational firefighters, you know. And we had a corporate uniform and anybody wore it, you know. So firefighters, well, that's our uniform. Why? Why is it? What do you mean by your uniform? Is it you want to, you know, diversity is about embracing everybody and their differences. Mm -hmm. And I think uniform is quite an interesting conversation to have in a traditional hierarchy. Mm -hmm. um, but I think these are conversations we've got to have, Randy. Otherwise, I, I don't think we're really going to embrace diversity when the clothes we wear sort of distinguish our role and our function and who we are. I think that's quite a, going to be quite a challenge. Yeah, especially as we uh, divest our uh, our roles um, and incorporate, you know, the whole community risk reduction, integrated risk management piece. We're going to have multiple players as part of that team um and we don't want them to look different no and i think you know climate change so one of the ideas i, I tried to get going in um, australia was the idea of um a climate core volunteers who would help on climate events um who may not be interested in being in the firefighting side of the service or fire prevention but are really interested in the climate change agenda um and can we capture that pool of people mm -hmm. and you know a lot of people want to volunteer and the fire service is such a great banner to come together under you know the, everybody knows where the fire station is and you know what a brilliant community hub and it, you know it could serve so much good and that's why we, we had the gyms and we had health classes and you know what about the climate change a lot of fire stations in australia have um uh, bottle deposit schemes so that you can go and drop your bottles off and you know recycling facilities and fire stations so there's some really interesting models around the world about the fire station the role of the fire station as well as the role of the firefighter mm. and i think the more imaginative we are about what community risk reduction means i think the more the public will embrace and appreciate the fire service no, I, yeah, I totally agree. You had mentioned uh, um, a few minutes ago about the different response types that you used in Merseyside, and I, I remember reading an article at one point about the use of motorcycles, motorcycle mm. response to engage with um, building alarms. 
Yeah, so we when we did the, the analysis on our fire automatic fire alarms, we found that roughly 96% were false alarms. And I guess my view has always been that the purpose of the alarm is for the building owner to protect their building, their asset, and the mm -hmm. people in it. So first and foremost, it enabled escape, and secondly, then it protected the asset. And that's all about the building owner. And yet, the building owner wanted me to pay for a lot of firefighters to risk their lives driving on the blue lights to get to this building, mm -hmm. help the evacuation for the building owner, and then go and check the building owner's building and waste public resource to find out it was a false alarm. Mm -hmm. And I, I just felt that was a pretty disrespectful to the community to waste all this community money just so the building owner could be sat in the building saying, well, you know, you pay for it all. I said, that's not our responsibility. That's the owner of the building's job. So you do all that. And then if there's a fire, you phone us. That's when we come, when you've got a fire. But until you've got a fire, it's your building and your systems and your problem. You sort the problem out. And so the midpoint, the compromise that I'll send a guy who can help you understand and analyze and sort of check the building, but you only need one guy to do that. You don't need four or five people. So I'll send them on a motorbike so they can get there pretty quick, even when it's busy traffic, and they can help you do your you know, assessment of the problem. Um, and so that's the sort of model we brought in. And in all honesty, most people agreed with it and adopted it. Um, mm -hmm. It does have a, an impact on turnouts. You know, you, you dramatically reduce the number of times your fire trucks go out, roughly by about 30%. Most fire departments, 30% of the calls are to false alarm, fire alarms. Um, and I just felt it was very demoralizing and very dangerous to send fire trucks to something you knew on 96% of occasions was going to be a false alarm. And the other thing today, you know, with social media and Facebook and phones, you know, you, you can't blink without somebody taking a picture. You know, there's nothing could happen without there being a million pictures on Facebook within seconds. So yeah. the idea that you could somehow miss a call, I, I just think it's a bit bizarre. You know, particularly when weighed against the risk of how many firefighters get injured responding to automatic fire alarms. You know, we had a couple of firefighters killed, and I just thought, I'm never again going to somebody's home and saying, your husband or your wife lost their life knowing that they were going to something that was just un completely unnecessary. You know, what an appalling job. And I just know that's not what we should be doing. No. Um, and so those policies have been in place for many years. You know, and the cities are all still stood there. And, and what else could you do with that time? And just the, the impact on the environment, just the fuel used alone. You know, this is millions of dollars responding to automatic fire alarms. And, you know, there's a great question. What if what if we didn't? What's the worst that could happen? You know, and the, it, it is a big cultural shift. Um, mm -hmm. And in that pool of calls that, you know, yes, there might be the odd call you miss, but there is anyway, you miss it for other reasons. You know, I think that's that's the job of a leader to make reasonable decisions and balanced judgments, not to always run for the hills and say, well, I'm not, it's what we've always done. So I'm, I'm not going to change it because I've got to carry the risk of what if, 
And I mm-hmm. think the job of the leader is to carry that risk and to make those. That's why we, leads get paid more. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, with, with responsibility and accountability, you know, that's what, that's yeah. what goes hand in hand with being a leader. Yeah, no, that's really true. But yeah, but you also, you, you always butt up against that, you know, cultural edict that this is the way we've always done it. And it's really, really difficult to change. And even though we know 96, 98% of the time when an alarm goes off, it's a malfunction. You're right, but I also think we're staffed with so many nice people. I think the fire yeah. service finds it really hard to disagree amicably. You know, just because I might disagree with some doesn't mean I don't think they're a nice person and we can't be friends. It seems to me friendship and, and comradeship have room for you don't have to agree for it on everything to have <laughs> friendships and comradeships at work. Yeah. You know, you can have great working relationships and have different views. At the top of an organization in our, our hierarchies, someone's going to make the call. And I think providing the person who makes a call is very open and transparent and authentic about why they've come to a decision. I always find firefighters, even if they disagree, went with it. They understood it um, mm-hmm. and, and actually found it much cleaner to work in that space because at least they understand. I made the decision for these reasons, you, you know, and you may disagree with X, Y, and Z, and you're entitled to, but I've made the call and this is what we're doing. I think most people would rather that than knowing their heart hearts, this doesn't feel right. You know, the moment a firefighter loses their life going to a fire, a false fire alarm, mm-hmm. we've all got to look at ourselves and take a long, hard look. And say, is this really the right thing to do for our service and for our community? Or we kill a child, you know, en route to a fire alarm. You think, you know, look at the mayhem caused just by the transport movement. Is it really, you know, is it worth it? And that's our judgment to make. But I, I don't think we should be walking away from some of those tough judgments. Um, and, and that was always my view, Randy. And so that's, so I felt the motorbike, sending someone to help businesses was a reasonable compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we try to approach decision making in a very transparent way, very authentic way. We would consult, but again, consultation. We were very clear what that means in a hierarchy. It means I ask your opinion about something, and then I listen to your opinion. It doesn't mean I will always follow it. You know, I think there was a culture, perhaps before I was a leader, was consultation means you do what if enough of us just say you do this you have to do it because you're consulting mm-hmm. and that's not true you know i'm consulting to find your view if a lot of you share a view for example there was a very common view it wasn't the job of a firefighter to go and fit smoke alarms in people's homes mm-hmm. that was a virtually a unanimous view apart <laughs> from me <laughs> luckily yeah. luckily I was the guy who had the job of deciding what we did. And so my decision, even though everybody disagreed, was that's what we're going to do. And and that's what I mean by having the courage of your conviction. And Mm -hmm. to be fair to our firefighters, even though a lot of them disagreed, they went with the decision because they understood that I was passionate and authentic and said, okay, now we've had our say, we will go with it. And then very quickly, 
they sort of outperformed me in their convictions. They just did an amazing job. And you can see yeah. it all over America with community risk reduction. It's it's not all chief driven. It's firefighters taking the initiative mm-hmm. and firefighters coming to ideas. And I, I think that's the magic of community risk reduction, that, that firefighters can really show their initiative and innovation. No, I totally agree. And we're bumping up on time for our podcast. So uh, what I'd like to do is roll out of this one. And uh, can you come back for a second podcast? We'll finish up. I want to talk a little bit more about kind of that cultural element of, you know, that shift that you experienced and we've experienced in the in the fire and emergency services. Then, I, then I'd like to kind of explore with you where, where you see the future. Uh, going great. No problem at all, Randy. Thank you. Thank you for the time. It's been great speaking to you. Yes, good speaking with you. We'll be back. Uh, we'll be back in part two. Thank you. Thank you.